at the time, I didn't understand how people could feel more pain than I felt. And then obviously I knew my parents were fit that category, especially now as a parent, you know, it's sort of unthinkable and unimaginable. I mean, it impacted us greatly. Every changes everything. I'm Gil Galanos and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them and the mark they leave. On today's show, multiple time James Beard award winning chef Michael Salomonov. To our food listeners, Michael Salomonov needs no introduction. But for those who haven't heard of him, he rose to global prominence with his Philadelphia restaurant Zahav. And that's where our conversation took place, so you may hear his kitchen crew running past us now and then. Now what's interesting about Zahav is that it actually helped shift public perception of what Israeli cuisine is. In his restaurant and cookbook named after it, Michael crafts a rich culinary story, one about Jewish diaspora, cultural melting pots, and coexistence itself. Today, Michael is a successful business owner with 17 restaurants and over 400 employees. But his rise to the pinnacle of the food world was far from predictable. He's a college dropout and recovering drug addict. He's a former picky eater who fell into cooking out of necessity, not desire. And tragedy struck close to home with the death of his brother, David. At the time, David was serving in the Golani Infantry Brigade of the Israel Defense Forces. I myself also served there. And it was Michael's ability to talk about his tragedy and his entire journey, honestly, that I most appreciate about him. In his youth, Salomonov bounced between Israel, his birthplace, and the US where his mother was from. As a teenager, his family moved yet again back to Israel. This move was tough for Michael, who found himself halfway across the world in a culture somewhat foreign and with a language he barely spoke. It wasn't easy, and I was super pissed off and resentful at my parents. Moving back when you're 15, it's a tough time to move. And then if you throw new language and also just new culture, it's a really, it's hard to break through, I think. And then moving back to the States, even more so, and I felt like I was not at home. You moved by yourself, right? I moved back to Pittsburgh by myself, and I stayed with a friend of the family until I got kicked out for smoking cigarettes in the bathroom of their house. Yeah, it wasn't a great time of my life. I was a major asshole. The issue was I moved back, and I was like, there's something now missing in my life. I felt like an outsider a little bit. You know, it like got me, like Israel got me. It's the same thing that I feel today. Whether I go once a year, once every other year, four times a year, in the airport at Ben-Gurion on the way back, I'm always in tears. I definitely know the feeling after living in the States for the past 15 years. 15 years? Yes. It's hard, right? It is. So then you finish high school and you decide to go to University of Vermont, right? I did, yeah. So I was really big into photography. And then I went to visit a friend that went to University of Vermont and we partied like super hard one weekend. And I was like, I'm going to Vermont. I love it here. <laughs> the art program was not like awesome. I mean, it's a fine art program, but like I took my parents' hard-earned money and pissed it down the drain basically with smoking pot and snowboarding. So I made it about three semesters and dropped out. I ended up in rehab, like overdosed, all those things. I'm a recovering drug addict now, and I've got almost 13 years clean and sober. And so this was the first manifestation of like, wow, I might have a problem. I had to call my parents in Israel and be like, hey, guess what? (laughs) 
you know, I might might have to drop out of school. By the way, I'm in rehab. And then at the end, I was like, and I got a tattoo. Click. Wow. That's a lot. So after you dropped out, what then? I moved back to Israel. My parents had gotten a divorce a year prior to that. So it was totally surreal. And I, you know, like I said, I pissed everything away. I felt defeated. And I tried to like get a job by just walking up and down, asking people if they needed help. What type of jobs? I needed any kind of job. It didn't really matter. But I went to a bakery and I asked them if they needed help. I did not want to be a baker or a chef or any of that. I just needed like work. And three semesters of studio art and like almost no Hebrew doesn't get you super far in the Israeli job market, right? Did you cook as a child? No. I mean, I made French toast with my grandmother. (laughs) That was the extent of it. I was the pickiest eater in the world, I know, which is hilarious. So I get a job. I'm like, oh, I'm working at a bakery. I was like scrubbing magashim. Like I was- was, You were happy? uh, I was happy because despite washing sheet trays- for like 12 hours and getting shouted at and screamed at in like Arabic, Russian, Hebrew, Farsi, whatever. Any, you know, every kind of person works in a bakery in Israel. It was the first time in my life I felt like I had done anything honest. Mm. You know, I was like not making money from selling pot. I was just working, you know, and I was learning Hebrew and I was learning about Israeli society. So to go from this life of just taking and taking and taking from people and manipulating and lying to essentially working for almost nothing, to be part of something. Right. It was giving, right? It was the first taste of like hospitality. Wow. So they kicked my ass and it was so hard. It was so much work. But it was like I said, I was doing things honestly and I was doing them with my hands and it felt really good. So you decided you want to be a chef and you ended up going to culinary school. And did you know already what you want to do after graduation? I thought I was going to move to New York, but the girl that I was dating at the time, we came to Philadelphia for one weekend and it was like, well, there's all these fantastic restaurants here. The cost of living in Philly is like at least half of New York. And so we just ended up in Philly. At the time, to be a fancy chef or to be considered like a successful chef, you had to cook European like refined food. So I did that, but I did that with like Israeli touches. I took my grandmother's borikas and I stuffed it with porcini mushrooms and foie gras, which she would have hated. I cook lamb with coffee and hell, like cardamom, like Turkish coffee braised or Arabic coffee braised lamb. So we were doing all this refined cooking, all this high concept stuff. And then I'd go to Israel, get off the airplane, go to Shkhanot Tikva, go to a restaurant, Busi, which is like a grill, like a Shipudia place that's been open since like 1951. And you'd sit down and the server would go run down the street, get a bunch of lava from like the communal taboon, like the bakery, drop it on the table, drop a bunch of salads on the table that were Greek, Turkish, Yemeni, Palestinian, you know, Bulgarian, all this, right? And then you would get hummus inevitably and four different kinds of trina and then pick food that was all cooked over charcoal and sticks and i was like why are we cooking anything like what this is what people want (laughs) to eat this is it this explains two thousand years of diaspora this explains the relationship between jewish and arab or palestinian cuisine and the sort of tapestry of culture that we have and it's like food that you roll up your sleeves and you eat with gusto you know so that was the idea. It was we're doing all this like refined stuff, putting zatar on this, you know, labne, black truffles, that. Why not just make this food that we eat in Israel? Why not just open an Israeli restaurant? And even at the time, and there were Israeli chefs in the United States that were making like Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, right. modern, Arabic. I don't yeah. fucking know, but nobody just said it was Israeli food. And even in Israel, if you asked an Israeli where to get the best Israeli meal, what was the answer? Like, well, there's 
you know, there's a shakshuka place here, which is like Tunisian. There's a couscous place there. And so at the time, if you asked an Israeli, there was no real Israeli cuisine. I want to switch gears a little bit, if you don't mind. And, and to let you know, there's like nothing off the table. You can ask whatever you want. Cool. Okay. So in 2003, your brother David and the Israeli Defense Forces yes. was shot and killed uh, near the Lebanon, Lebanon uh, border. Yes. Where were you at the time? So at the time, I went to pick up my dad's car that should have been David's car. I was driving his car back from Pittsburgh, and I was like an hour and a half away. I was actually in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. And my aunt called. She said, when you get home, you have to call me. And I could tell that there was something obviously wrong. I mean, so I pulled over and I was like, tell me what's going on. She said, David was killed. Um, and, you know, I had just seen him a month before that. He was killed three days or something before his release. He was killed on Yom Kippur. You know, it was like Shakespeareanly tragic. He wasn't actually even supposed to be there. There was another soldier that was observant that wanted to go to shul. And so my brother switched with him and they were in an apple orchard and three snipers that were probably Hezbollah in Lebanon fired through the border and killed him. So, wow. yeah. Oh, I, unfortunately, I was, I spent a lot, a lot of my army in Lebanon mm. and I, I lost some friends and witnessed very closely what, what it did the impact that it I'm sorry. had. Sorry, what year were you serving there? In the nineties. Oh, so you were there, like when you were actually in Lebanon? Like I was, I was yeah, yeah. yeah, I was in there. I was deep inside uh, before IDF withdrew to the border. But um, yeah, unfortunately, lost friends and I'm so sorry. Saw what it did to the families, and I wonder how did it impact the family. At the time, I didn't understand how people could feel more pain than I felt, and then obviously, I knew my parents were fit that category especially now as a parent you know it's sort of unthinkable and unimaginable i mean it impacted us greatly every changes everything my mom passed away four years ago five years ago on rosh hashanah so like the chagim for me totally fucking suck but <laughs> that's besides the point she became very close to everybody that served with david which is common. Next Monday, I'm going to an NBA game with the sister of my best friend from the army that died in Lebanon. Exactly. And those things are very difficult to translate. All my brother's friends became my mom's best friends. And my brother's commander at her funeral told me that he hadn't gone two weeks, two weeks without talking to my mom in, you know, 13 years. I don't think that you can explain those things and I think that whatever it is that we go through or Israelis go through in Israel, it just becomes sort of amplified after that. People on the outside of Israel don't understand that there's no like weird demographic thing that we have like here in the States, right? We were at war on Afghanistan for 20 years. And if we were low income or we lived in the South or something, it would affect us, I guess, a little bit more, but it didn't affect any of us. Right. It wasn't even a discussion for a presidential election. In Israel, it doesn't really matter right. where you stand politically, socioeconomically. It just doesn't matter. Everybody serves. For me, though, yeah. I told you I always had these addictive tendencies. My brother getting killed, as you can imagine, that sort of unlocked the demon. And from the addiction standpoint, I can almost see it. The addiction sitting on my shoulder, looking over my brother's lifeless body, being like, here we go. So I came back from his funeral and immediately started using drugs like very heavily and kept this addiction going for five years, like hidden, oh. totally hidden. 
I met my wife at the time, met my business partner, Steve, but I always had this excuse. If I wanted to be away and isolate and use inevitably, but have an excuse for it, I always had this reason and nobody could argue with that. And that's the really, really screwed up thing with addiction is that you literally will manipulate anybody, including a dead brother to get what it is that you want. So we opened Zahav and my use went from like heavy to like very heavy to like arguably very dangerous. My wife kind of figured it out while I was like passed out one night and I woke up one morning. My wife was like, you you need to come downstairs. I come downstairs. My business partner, Steve, was sitting in my living room and he's like, we know you have a problem. We want to take you to rehab. And this was somebody who like five hours prior had no idea that his business partner, who we collateralized our homes, I mean, everything was depending on one another, was hiding a crack and heroin addiction. And the first thing he did was say, like, I want to help you out. So it was really, obviously, a difficult <laughs> a difficult year after that. But he drove me to rehab. I went to rehab. I came out. I slipped a few times. It was like a really hard thing. Addiction is not an easy thing. And the guilt of being alive when my brother was killed. I mean, it would be very easy to make a case in the world of right and wrong why I should have been the one to die and not David. Now, listen, I'm not saying that I should, but all things being equal, David was the one who was not an addict. He was not a manipulator. He was very compassionate, joined the IDF, became a sniper in Golani, and was, you know, this patriot. And also this compassionate, wonderful kid. As you know, as you've experienced, the good ones are the ones that die first, right? Yes. I I wanted to say, first of all, he was in Golani. Yeah. I was in Golani. Oh, which... which, uh I was in OEV, which is the anti-tank missiles, and okay. then 13. Yeah, he was in Shloshisra. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was in, yeah, wow. You know, so observant may say that God is choosing the best to join. And listen, at the time of his funeral, that's the last goddamn thing I want to hear. But I, as you know, it's, uh, there's this sort of unjust unfairness to the whole thing. Right. Especially, too, in Lebanon, it's such a crazy place. We would need another two hours to describe the nuances yeah. of how like messed up that whole situation was. We'll talk about it, and I'll throw myself down a flight of steps because it's so frustrating. <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, too, like southern Lebanon or northern Israel, like Metula is one of the most beautiful places on earth. And at David's shiva, the apple orchard, the farmer, came down with this bushel of apples that were so sweet, so incredibly beautiful, so sweet. And you're like, and this is where all this violence, all this craziness, and I'm, again, my politics are not important to this, but I think that I'm a very reasonable, peace-loving person. But where in the world would it be okay for snipers and opposing military to fire through international borders? Yeah. Sorry to elaborate. Part of the Part of the complexity of Israel. Yeah. So you launched Zahav while you're dealing with drug addiction. Oh my God, we opened Zahav and I was driven to rehab by my business partner like three months later. Wow. And then I came out of rehab in 2008 like, and then the economy crashed. The Phillies won the World Series, which is like great if you don't own an Israeli restaurant without a television in. Like it sucked. <laughs> we were electing a new president. Nobody was interested. I was like 60 days clean and sober, barely hanging on to like not getting high every day. It was like a disaster. I remember sitting outside in the courtyard with Steve. We were just smoking cigarettes like, oh shit, we're going to have to like close. Like we were not paying anybody. We weren't paying ourselves. We couldn't really keep the lights on. 
So I called my dad and I was like, Abba, I need to borrow like $10,000 to make payroll. And he was like, uh, okay, you're doing all right? Because he knew obviously I was like yeah. in early recovery. Right. And he just played it super cool. And then I, <laughs> I hang up and then Steve gets a call and it's my dad calling to be like, is Mike okay? It brings me to tears to even talk about, you know? So my dad gave us a check for like 10,000 bucks. And, you know, luckily we never cashed that check. A week later, Philadelphia Magazine gave us this great glowing review. Everybody came into the restaurant and, you know, the rest is history. So you're considered to be the Israeli food ambassador to the U.S. You're not hiding behind Mediterranean or Middle Eastern. You're proudly saying we serve modern Israeli food. And I wanted to ask you, like with all the sensitivities, I wanted to ask you a simple but very, very complex question. What is Israeli cuisine? And what are all the sensitivities? About well, the sensitivities question? are Israel, right? And then it's the sort of metaphor of like Israel taking, right? And stealing, you know, is the big one. You know, I understand it. For people that believe that Israel doesn't have the right to exist, I'm not going to make an argument to them. It's beyond. But for me, Israeli cuisine is all the diasporic cuisines that came from different countries post-Second Temple destruction that all cooked in their unique way. My Israeli grandmother is Bulgarian, so she made Sephardic dishes like crazy, like borekas are what we grew up with. And then the older I got, the more I realized, well, this wasn't just like Israeli food, even though you find it boreikas you find on like every street corner in Israel. If you go back, like the Batsek, Shela Borekas, like the dough is the Spanish dough. My grandmother's last name was Toledo. I mean, they came from Spain. You take the Spanish dough and it's conquered by Ottomans, so they stuff it with feta cheese. And then in 1948, it makes it to Israel and it's found on every single street corner. I mean, when we talk about Yemeni food, it's not just food from Yemen, it's Jewish food which means that the cuisine is based on laws of kashrut. Mm -hmm. So every single Jewish diasporic cuisine has to figure out how to make an elaborate meal with signature dishes that don't require adjusting of temperature from Friday to Saturday, right. which is a crazy parameter, right? It's insane. Anthropologically, the way it tells the story of Israel is fascinating. And then we've got indigenous cuisines, like the Palestinian cuisine from like the north, very similar, I think, to Lebanese, Syrian, or Levantine cuisines. And then the cuisine from Gaza, which is totally different. It is mountains and snow in the north. It is cheese making and wine production also in the south. That's what Israeli cuisine is. And yes, it's conflict and it's commonality and it's all those things wrapped up. Right. But it's fascinating and I love cooking it and I understand why there's sensitivity to it. On one hand, I try to be as empathetic as possible, and I don't know what it's like to be Palestinian living in the West Bank, for example. But the majority of Israel, I think, is underrepresented in terms of the international discussion, right. especially the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. And I feel like there's a case for that to be made with cooking as well. But to say that like Israeli cuisine has only stolen Arabic food or only Palestinian food is just lazy and wrong. Right. I looked at your social media and I see you're not shying away from the conversation. Is it part of your role as an ambassador or is it, is it just your nature? It's... Aren't you concerned that you're going to find yourself in the middle of a storm? I mean, we are, probably are, but, and that's okay. I mean, there's people that hate what we do because we say anything Israeli. There's people that are upset at us because on our wine list, we say wines of Israel and Palestine. Every six months, there'll be somebody that'll be like, what do you mean? There's no such thing. It's only Judea Samaria. And I'm like, all right. So far, it hasn't affected us meaningfully. And we can sit and go tit for tat, but I'm not doing that. And I think it's ridiculous. 
Also, I don't know, I recognize everybody's right to self-determination. Those are things from a Jewish and Israeli perspective and value system that I was raised with, and I'm not going to shy away from those things. On the other hand, I'm not the one that makes foreign policy. (laughs) Also, you know, I lived in Israel in the 90s, right before the Second Antifada, and like I understand why certain things were done the way that they were. And I don't agree with them necessarily, but I also think context is everything. Yeah, I know it's a really difficult thing. Everybody's going to get pissed off hearing this, and that's okay. I think the big question is, and this is where I always end up, is why is it controversial? Why is it controversial to say Israeli cuisine? Why is there such stigma behind it? And why does it piss people off so much? And I guess the flip side to that, when we're only talking about cuisine and we're talking about either appropriation or this sort of metaphor, it would be the same thing as like me being uncomfortable by somebody saying that's a Palestinian dish, right? And I think that's what we have to start stripping away. This sort of association with these like words and terms that inflame us with food, I think that we can do it. So the restaurants is doing really well and then more awards outstanding chef, outstanding restaurant, the best international cookbook, etc. What does it all mean? Well, listen, I mean, to win any James Beard Award once is like almost beyond. To win five James Beard Awards, I mean, the crazy thing is the curtain goes up today at 5 p.m. We have 250 people coming in that all have a specific taste that we've never met. And if we don't hit it out of the park with them, those awards don't mean shit, you know? (laughs) The awards are good. I think in general, it's a bad idea to like, listen to those things. We can't ever rest on our laurels. We only have to get better. And we win awards and that's great. We have to win an award with 250 strangers tonight. (laughs) Through your partnership with Steve Kukunsolo Hospitality Group, you started branching out of the kitchen and opening wildly successful restaurants, Ape Future, Federal Donuts, Dissingov, Goldie, Far, Merkaz. Do you feel like you became a little bit more like a business person rather than a chef? Yeah, I mean, that's something we struggle with all the time. Steve's got a business background. I mean, he was an investment banker before he got into restaurants. He's hyper-intelligent, very quiet. I'm sort of the opposite. And everyone thinks that Steve's like the money guy. And everyone thinks that I cook everything in the restaurant. And the reality is we sort of do everything. And there is no one role. Our partnership is what makes this work. And our friendship and our... Bond, I mean, he's definitely the sort of closest person to me in my life. We own 17 restaurants, 400 employees, pretty successful, whatever that means in restaurants business. So inevitably, yeah, I'm like a business guy. We're like HR directors. We're like managers. I'm a drug counselor. I'm a mentor. Like we're all those things. And then also spiritually, I'm trying to represent and advocate for Israel right. while we do it. So it's just it's a lot. easier ways to make not a lot of money, <laughs> I think. But um, it is something that we love and it's something that saved me sort of figuratively and literally. It's a way for me to advocate for this country that my brother died defending and a country that I think is very misunderstood. Right. You dealt with a lot. I mean, you didn't have a lot of life direction. You lost your brother, drug addiction, Yeah, you know, everything that you dealt with. But where did you get all the strength? You know what it is? I've got like amazing people in my life. I'm surrounded by people that are loving, that are compassionate, that are also no nonsense. I think that that's it. I, I think that it comes from other people. I don't think it's internal. I mean, you surround yourself by people that you love, that care about you, that are driven, that make you laugh, that are creative, that challenge you. I think that's the sort of key. Now for our final questions. What's the one piece of advice that you would have given the younger you, Michael Salamanov, when you started your way? 
specifically with my family and, and you know, my brother, I, I just wish I would have had a little bit more time, you know? So I, I, that's not fair, but I just think that there are all these things in our lives that are fantastic. And we have this idea that we're going to be sort of independent and push away the things that are good for us sometimes. And I, I wish I would have maybe dug in a little bit more to that. What are you currently obsessed with? Mm. I'm currently obsessed with very late season tomatoes. The tomatoes that we're getting right now as it gets colder are fantastic. So what I've been doing is salting them, a little bit of local honey, and then in the oven at a very low temperature for a very long time. And then just like covering them with olive oil, Bulgarian feta cheese, and then za'atar. And that's been, that's what uh. I'm obsessed with. I gave myself a stomach ache the other day. I ate so many of them. So my, my last one here is, uh, what are you most optimistic about? I am an optimist in general. When you're in Israel, you become not complacent, but you're living it. Your opinions almost don't matter that much. It's just is what it is. But I am optimistic. I do think that there is an ability to get through a little bit of this darkness with a deeper understanding of the people on every side, you know, right. and really finding a bit of harmony. And I know I sound like I should be playing Kumbaya right now, but I do think that the darkest part of the night is the hour directly before dawn. And I think that sometimes we have to disrupt a little bit to get to a better place. Amen. Mike, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up and you can also follow us on Instagram at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's See you next time.